This is our second session of the meaning behind the prayers, looking at how we get to the liturgy that we, uh, that we have. And so I thought it was important after our last session of rabbinic rambling in which I think I remember where we ended the conversation that we also look at one other piece of structure of prayer, which is the times of day that we pray. And that will help us look at the prayer for this week. So when we think about prayer, one of the important things to remember is when was prayer created? Like in a Jewish context, does anyone know when prayer was created or why the prayer services as we know them were created? It's a very different question than just when's prayer created because you can have the argument that there is some prayer in our in our text. You have the story in which Hannah is is moving her lips and the high priest is confused and it turns out it is a a prayer to God, an individual spontaneous prayer. Um, but when is the prayer structure that we know inside of our faith? When is that crafted? After the destruction of the temple. After the destruction the of the rabbi temple. Rabbi substituted prayer for sacrifice and tried to make the prayer mirror the times of sacrifice. So there's a few pieces to unpack right there. The first of which is after the destruction of a temple, a non-in-power group of people in that are the future of the, the past of the rabbis stop and say we have to create this thing. So first of all, a lot to be gleaned from. For starters, they did not have a mandate. This group did not have the influence of the people yet. They were a group that was passionately, deeply, lovingly concerned with what's next after the destruction of the temple. And so they create a system before they have any idea if anyone's even going to follow it. It was truly an act of, of love in that sense to go through and craft what they thought was the way to keep the tradition alive and did so by completely reassessing and reassigning. Why does that matter? Well, as liberal Jews today, sometimes we have this little Jewish guilt complex where we think if we've restructured or reoriented or re-identified what a prayer, what a holiday, what an observance should be, that somehow it's not quite traditional. But the tradition is that when the thing got destroyed, they just made up a new set now, they took the time to tether it authentically to parts of the past. But much like when I do a baby naming, if it's for a, a baby girl, we do a foot washing. Now, you could easily say a foot washing. Where the heck does that come from? And I would say back, Abraham. Abraham washes the feet of the stranger, makes them feel loved. We can tie it all the way back down to Torah. Now, does that mean it's actually been part of the tradition this entire time? No. But the authenticity of finding a connection to our tradition actually starts with the idea of prayer. So before the destruction of the temple, we had sacrifice. Yes. But was there no prayer attending the sacrifice? Yeah, we dabbled. We dabbled. It wasn't codified, strategic, organized, repetitious prayer that one would consider to be like canonized in a, a liturgical book. So there was a gathering of people. Mm-hmm. There was no welcome prayer. There was no Shema. There was no... There was not. That was not the way it was used at the time. Now, there may have been little added pieces, um, but it was not done that every time you do this sacrifice, you have this set of prayers. What the rabbis actually do is they say, you're going to have to pray three times a day. The connection to prayer three times a day was the different times of sacrifice. But the rabbis go, in case you don't love that, or, by the way, because they're very bright, 
in case we have forgotten a lot about the temple, because they're projecting out that this will be the new forever, let us connect this to the three forefathers, and so that that connection would in itself be made. They say that each of the forefathers had a time of day in which they interacted with the divine in their stories. So let's play with that. What time did Abraham interact with the divine? The first time was in mourning, right? So the Shacharit service starts because it's the first time that God comes to, to Abraham and all kinds of the story has to do with Abraham, get out, go forth, wake up in the morning and go. What time does Jacob interact with the divine? It is in a what? In a dream, which means it's a snooze fest. He wrestled all night with the angel. He gets Mariv. And if he has Mariv, who gets Mincha? Isaac. And so what they do is they show that Isaac also has an interaction with God in which that's how we get Mincha. So the rabbis say twofold. One, replace sacrifice. Why? Because sacrifice is our connection to God. And now that we don't have a temple, we need to sacrifice something or have some type of intentionality. Prayer reaches from the heart, the heart straight to God. That is the same as soulful sacrifice. And two, if that isn't good enough for you, we've connected it to the original characters. So the rabbis, that's pretty bold. That's a pretty big stretch from saying, grab two doves, come over here, right? Do me a favor, bring that cow, cut the back half of that cow off. Like, this is a much more, like, gruesome and intense and, and industrial, like, system to, like, bring a cow for sacrifice. And later they're like, just shake back and forth for about 20 minutes saying different random phrases, and then we'll call it a day, right? Like, for them to get there is a pretty bold transformation of what they consider to be faith, and it is done in a wildly successful manner. There is an argument that if they didn't do that, there'd be no Judaism today. Or the other other argument that this was yet another reconstruction of Judaism. And I would argue... Some people began, I think began with Deuteronomy. And I would argue that that's exactly why we have to do it today, right? That when we reconstruct, when we look at prayers differently, when we recontextualize, when we push back on lines from Torah that seem to maybe be out of context in today's modern sensibilities, we are doing the same thing that the rabbis did. They said, this isn't going to work anymore. Not just, we can't rebuild the temple. They rebuilt the temple once. They converted over to a new system. In fact, I believe we talked about last time, but again, we did a lot of rabbinic tangenting, so I I think we talked about this last time, when people often consider Judaism to be the parent religion of Christianity. Did we talk about this? No. Judaism is often considered to be the parent religion of Christianity. Is that actually true? And here is how that answer gets complicated. When did Judaism begin? Did Judaism begin as a cultic Israeli faith that had a centralized place of worship? Or was that Israelite cultic faith? And was Judaism actually a creation of the rabbis that happened after the destruction of the temple? Right around the same time that this little known character named Jesus was shaking some stuff up and creating some waves. And so if we're really being authentic, Judaism is not the parent religion to Christianity. By the way, this would blow a lot of our Christian friends' minds because they have really come to terms with this idea that Judaism is the parent religion and they've graduated from it in some sense. It's a sister religion. It was really formed at the same time. They were each finding an answer to a shift in a a, a void of faith. And so Judaism is probably more the creation of the rabbis, which is around the same time as the creation of Christianity, which means they were probably creating 
for similar reasons and just took different tracks in how they then built out that faith. And they could have decided to build a lot of little temples in other places, and they decided not to. And this is the point. They and decided to pivot fully away from full, it. Right, and, and that's why it's called rabbinic Judaism, which some people argue is actually a different religion from cultic Judaism. Oh, no, and that's what I'm arguing, right? Like cultic Israeli tradition is the parent religion to Judaism, Judaism right. but it is not the same as the religion we know. It's one of the reasons that on a little holiday called Tisha B'Av, which is about the destruction of the temple, some of us don't fast. Because if we didn't destroy the temple, I wouldn't have a job. There would be no rabbis. They would still have a high priest in a very messy set of garb dealing with all kinds of issues with the blood splatter and the this and the that. And the and we, by the way, probably along the way would have said, like, are we sure we still want to do the slaughtering thing? The rabbis were really forward thinking in that. And in some ways, that needs to charge us with the way we see prayer. And so when we study the origin of a blessing and a prayer, which is what we're going to do again today, we also have to decide do we follow that line of deciding how it contextually fits? Sometimes the creation of a blessing is not the way we use it today, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. And so rather than go slow and bring you through all these different ideas, I thought I would jump into the most controversial prayer I could possibly find for our second session so that we could say on week one, we went over the Shema and on week two, I had a headache. And what is that headache? That headache is the blessing of Aleinu. So we're going straight to Aleinu. Aleinu is a blessing that comes supercharged and what I think we'll find when looking at it together is a lot of people here don't even know why. So at first glance, raise your hand if you are familiar with this prayer of Aleinu. Who can tell me when Aleinu happens in our tradition? Like when in the service does that happen? It's, I don't... The, it's the end of the service, but it began in Rosh Hashanah, in the Musaf. Okay. So we will get to the origin piece in there, but you are correct. But so let's actually start with who it's attributed to. Does anyone, has anyone ever thought about in the origin of these prayers, like who gets credit for the writing of a blessing? Often they'll credit a piece of ta a Torah. Maybe they'll credit some type of Mishnaic quote. Rabbi Akiva gets a lot of credit for these because of the way he amalgamates the data and puts it into a different way of reading it. But our tradition actually attributes the blessing or the prayer to the biblical Joshua at the time of the conquest of Jericho. Now, the reason for this is a fewfold. The first of which is that the the first letter of the first four verses in reverse, if you look at it upward, actually spell out Joshua's childhood name of Hosea. And so the rabbis say, ah, the author hit his name right in the first couple of verses. That must be it. No other reason to search. It's really, really helpful. Um, and also a little bit of a stretch because um, why backwards? Why not forwards? Why do you have to find that idea? How does it flip? And there's something important to us also noting that that's how the rabbis start the conversation because it's going to tell us something about the later controversy we'll get into. Another 
uh, version is the Men of Great Assembly, which is Rabbi Akiva and his, and his group, uh, during the time of the Second Temple. And early, that is the pre-Christian origin of the prayer, is evidenced by, uh, this explicit mentioning of bowing and kneeling. Practices that are very much associated to Temple Judaism and not about exile or after that. And so, yes, the first appearance of Alenu is actually the appearance that those of you who come to High Holidays with us still understand and see, which is the grand Alenu as a blessing that is brought in during the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. It's brought in by the Babylonian Talmudic sage of, uh, of Rabbi, uh, Arika, which is, sorry, I'm getting confused there. It's sometimes they throw their names around, but it's Arika. He included it in the Rosh Hashanah Musaf service as kind of a prologue to this idea of the Amidah that we're about to talk about the kingly portion, like to build up this idea of uh, the grandness of the uh, kingdom of God. He used this blessing of Alenu to kind of build up that grandness and glory. And so for that reason, some people have attributed him to the to the liturgy of it. And then in France, and this is probably the saddest part, it's not about the the authorship, but it's the origin story. People often ask how this prayer went from being Rosh Hashanah liturgy to being weekly liturgy. Correct. But, but to being liturgy that we use on a regular basis, daily liturgy. And the story goes that in the 11th century in France, there was one of many horrific moments of violence towards the Jews. And it's reported that 34 men and 17 women were put inside of the synagogue. There's actually two stories, one burned at the stake and one put in the sanctuary. And the synagogue was, was roped shut and that they set it on fire. And it's said that during their passing in the, these last moments of their lives, they sang bravely the song of Alenu in this way that was to make sure that God knew they still didn't give up on this kingdom of God. And so another version that the rabbis appeal to is that in honor of their steadfast faith, even in the face of death, that we use Alenu to connect now in a daily space for that reason. Now, why do I bring that up? There's a few reasons. The first is that I will acknowledge again, this shows us that there is a flexibility and elasticity to prayer, even when it's called canonized, even when it's concretized, that there still is a flexibility to it. <clears throat> but the other reason is, much like that is the honoring that went in in the time of, in the 11th century, so too can we as an institution only use it on Rosh Hashanah because we're just observing the origin of its of its place in the prayer service. And so I, I say that so that we don't automatically assume that when a liberal Jewish institution chooses to omit a prayer, it's not Judaism light. That's a thing that ends up being kind of a pet peeve for me in a lot of spaces is when you hear, well, it's Jewish light. You don't do all those prayers. Well, Sometimes there's a theological reason that we don't do a prayer. Sometimes there's a time reason. I'll accept that. Uh, and sometimes there is a standardization that has shifted, but it's not always because it's less. Sometimes it's because 
we want to choose. Are we going to commemorate that moment in that sacred of a space, or are we going to find to commemorate it in a different way by making the grand Alenu more grand from its lack of being present in our prayer liturgy the rest of the year? So that was a lot thrown at you all in six minutes just to begin this blessing of Alenu. And so I want to open up to what you know of Alenu, what you might remember from childhood of Alenu. Some of you might be thinking of its Irish drinking-like song quality. Um, others might be thinking of the fact that when you hear the Alenu, you know that Hala is about six minutes away. Uh, there's may- many different ways that you might be thinking of it. So I'm curious who has some type of association or thought connected to this blessing before we kind of go further into more of its controversial space. Because believe it or not, none of that was the controversy. Anyone have any thoughts or memories of or questions about Alenu before we dive in deeper? I grew, yes. I grew up yes, Margo. with the background of uh, Reform Judaism. My grandfather on my father's side was one of the founders of the Reform Senate's temple in uh, New Rochelle, New York. And that's the one, I mean, I, what, I was a synagogue um, goer, probably not on Friday night, but uh, other days and for uh, B'nai Mitzvah, if that's what they called them then and so forth. But it was a Reform Synagogue. I just remember that prayer being so powerful. I don't remember if the uh, cantor or the rabbi bows down and, you know, uh, in front of the ark and all that. But all I you know, it's it's the thing I think about when I think of the high holidays. And it just seemed to uh, be a very important moment in the uh, prayer service for some reason. Yeah, I think it's, it's it dramatic. is dramatic. I think yes. that's one of the things that important. Yeah. Okay. So what I will say is this. There's a few last pieces before we dive into the controversial part that we should look at. The first is that this prayer doesn't stop its development at the 13th century or the 11th century. Then in the 16th century, the Kabbalists also say, recording the opinions of, of Isaac Luria, by the way, ruled that both paragraphs of Alenu were so important that they should be in every single service and should end with the verse that on that day, the Lord shall be one and his name one. And that has since been adopted in most communities, except for a few different communities that will say, like, some of this language is problematic. Let's tweak it here. It is probably the most tweaked prayer in the Jewish tradition, whereas sometimes we here at KI during a bar about mitzvah will explain to our friends from not Reconstructionist background, you might get tripped up on our Torah blessings or our Kiddush sounds a little different. We replace four words. The Aleinu in the prayer book for the reform movement and the conservative have a total of five different options for that paragraph. Five different options for that paragraph in just two books, not to mention the Italian and the Portuguese and all these other places change certain words based on their relationships to the outside community. The question starts, why? Why would we change a blessing based on our relationship to the outside community when the Jews on the inside of the community don't even know what the blessing says? Why are we so worried about what other people who don't speak Hebrew are even going to infer from this blessing if we don't even know what we are saying when we say it? Yeah. And by outside community, you mean non-Jews? Yes. Just 
the this this blessing this prayer is particularly charged when it comes to outside um communities uh, specifically non-jewish communities one of the versions i was about to say traditional but there are so many different traditions yeah. line is basically an attack on other religions well let's look at that line we're going to look at that line in a few minutes and decide like if we think it really is but before we do that i actually want us to first look at the line, but we bend our knees and bow. So the first thing I'm going to do, let's see if the shared screen works this week. This is a little diagram down at the bottom here of the different actions that they were supposed to take to go from standing all the way to kneeling, and not just a normal kneeling, but to put your head on the floor. Now, what does that remind you of when you see prayer in which someone puts their head on the floor? Muslim prayers. Islam. Is Islamic prayer. It doesn't look Jewish, right? Except for the one iconic moment, of course, of assuming in the prayer space when the chazan gets onto their knees and literally goes down and puts their forehead all the way down to the ground. And so... What our tradition says is on the high holidays, the worshiper will not merely flex and bend. That's for daily Aleinu. Daily Aleinu, we bend our knees and we bow. But on these days, they will get down, they'll say these same words, and they will actually prostrate themselves on the floor of the synagogue, which looks a lot like Muslim prayer. Now, we could take that and run into all kinds of the origin of prayer, but there is something to be said about connectivity to the earth and the humbleness of this moment of recognizing there is this divine presence larger than us. That's what the bowing is really for. But enough of those pieces. Let's get into the controversy that Bert started to uh, allude to. In the second paragraph of the Alenu, there is this version of the Alenu. I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. It says, for they worshipped vanity and emptiness and prayed to a God who cannot save. That's the translation of the words. Referring to non-Jews. Well, wait. That's the problem with this moment. There is a question as to who it's referring to and what the reference is really saying. Because we don't do a lot of referring to non-Jews inside of our blessings. It isn't really a track inside of our tradition. Alenu holds a majority of the controversy when it comes to prayer being that. And actually, I think is one of the precursors to Mordechai Kaplan saying, let's take chosenness out of our liturgy because we've seen the danger of mistranslation and misunderstanding and um, the danger of alienation of our peers and our community, uh, those outside of our community in our prayer. So when reciting the end of the line of this idea, what you, what you have to realize is this notion of emptiness, okay, which is the word here, it gets a little close to a different word. And so here's what it is. There's this a, a Jew, Pesach Peter, who denounces it as a secret anti-Christian slur on the grounds that varik, one of the words in here, emptiness in the gematria, in mathematical Hebrew, equals 316. And Jesus, in gematria, equals 316. And therefore, that was a hidden way of poking at the Christians that somehow their, the emptiness was referring to the faith of Christianity. 
So far, does that seem like they had a lot of ground to stand on, that two different words added up to the same number in gematria, and therefore it was an attack on an entire tradition? And in vain, did the rabbis defend the sentence on the grounds that it came from the book of Isaiah? Or did they not do that and leave it up to speculation and pause? And so instead, they go one step even further and say that this whole notion of vanity and emptiness actually had the same value as not only Jesus, but vanity had the same value as Muhammad. And now all of a sudden, Alenu was twice as tricky because somebody had too much mathematical time on their hands and found the connection to these two very pinnacle deep pieces of the, of other traditions. And as a result, it became censored. Christian authorities in different countries said, you must censor this blessing. You cannot say this blessing. Now, later in the 1900s, uh, you, you have one person, Herbert Lowe at Cambridge University, who writes like, it was never about the Christians and it was never anything else. In fact, the universalist pronouncement was like messianic hope. It was, it was, it was truly about hope and about our despair and about our notions of wrestling with these things. But that became really tricky because of it. And I was sharing this earlier today with a couple of staff members and heard from across the room, what? Cause Chaim heard me over speaking it and, and he had never even heard this piece of it. It's such an interesting piece is as a result of that censorship, censorship and this need to still say their blessing, a practice arose that is very strange. When the word emptiness occurred, it was very, very close in Hebrew to the word spittle, like to spit. And so because of it, it became a practice around the 15th century to spit during that line so that rather than focus on the word emptiness, rather than have this theological issue, it became like the Jews were spitting to such an extent that some synagogues actually put spittoons at the end of the different rows so they could literally spit during the blessing of Alenu and kind of avoid this tense notion that it was actually uh, about this other design. And by the way, the words are so close that they're off by one letter. It's a resh versus a kuf. And so these synagogues, by constructing these spittoons, were kind of making the statement that you just mistranslated it. It's not, don't, don't over worry about it. Don't overthink it. Now, did that mean they actually believe that? No. They did not think it was spittle. That was just very creative. But over time, when you start something for that reason, later, what might happen if the creative language was to go from emptiness to spit, and then at some point people don't understand that sneak of attack, still go back to the idea that it might be anti-Christian, and suddenly the Jews are spitting during an anti-Christian prayer. Think we're in a better spot or think we're in a worse spot? The translate, so, so when you're asking what the translation is, you're saying of which piece? The two lines of translation is, for they worship vanity and emptiness and pray to a God who cannot save. But, creative writing assignment to everyone, who's the they? I guess it could be the Christians, but who could the they just as easily be? Yeah, we have like half the book of prophets being scolded by prophets for how terrible we are and how much faith we've lost. Like, there is ample evidence that it could be about the, 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 the misguided faithlessness of the Jewish people. Couldn't that relate to the, you, you didn't mention the lines before that that have to do with chosenness 
and that we were given a, a land and made special that nobody else was. I, I mean, yes, and that is how that's, modern. It's another problem with the prayer, very clearly about chosenness. So this is why I thought the origins of prayer was such an interesting class to have. That's a 19th century problem. Pre-19th century, half our prayers were like that. Chosenness was all over our stuff. Literally, kiddush, chosenness. Torah blessings, chosenness. Like, we we had chosenness all over our liturgy, and that was not a problem because, again, no one was really reading it. Or, by the way, Christian scholars believed who were the chosen people? The Jews. They had no question about it. They had no issue with it. They still, you know who's more adamant about the Jews being a chosen people than the Jews? The evangelicals. So chosenness could never really have been the controversy. That's a 19th century application when we started to feel guilt about those blessings. Now, I'm not saying that guilt isn't right, because again, the rabbis shifted the entire tradition. So I have no problem with a shift in our tradition. But those lines weren't the controversy. The controversy was these lines that were particularly poignant and made them feel that it was an attack on them, not an elevation or arrogance of us. So Alenu was not, it wasn't the issue of our arrogance. It was the issue of the spiciness of that reference specifically. So not surprisingly, the middle aged Christians were even more angry by God who cannot save, referring what they thought to Jesus. And so the church decreed, as I said, that you could not say the line. So even as late as like 1750s, 1780s in Prussia, for instance, you still had to omit the line. So at one point, once the line was pulled and you had to omit it, what also went away with it? The spitting. Because once the line was gone, there was not so much need for spit, in which case they took out the the spittoons and go away the tradition. Now, I think that's a mistake. I think my son as a six-year-old would absolutely love it if I told him that you have to spit during one of the prayers. It would probably be his favorite prayer by the end of day one, but we did, in fact, omit it. So, in the in the book of Joshua, right, when we're looking at the prophet Joshua, it's traditionally considered the author again. We have all kinds of issues with a faithless people. And so the fact that it got read in as the Christianity is some type of perfect storm with that gematria and that idea of misreading it and seeing it as those people. But at the end of the day, were those translations so bad? Probably not. Here insert our modern sensibilities, which I appreciate. Since this time, in the 19th century especially, we started to adapt that we would have different versions of the text. Like I said, there's two versions in the Sidor Sim Shalom. There's three versions in the Reform Mishkan Tefillah. There's, there's two in the Reconstructionist version of it. There's one prayer called Vehashe Vota, which is right in the middle of Alenu. We tried to sing it during Shabbat on the Rocks. It didn't catch on, but eventually, essentially goes, um, it's just one line that then leads straight into that Ending, which everyone knows and brings them right back to Hala's in four more minutes, right? So now it's four because you had two minutes of Alenu. I didn't change my math. It was originally six, right? So we then take this avenue of the prayer is controversial because of our elitism. Why? Because Christian authorities for so long forced the omission of the prayer that it was no longer the focal point of the disdain. Somehow, we knew it was controversial, we knew it was problematic, and we were left to question how. And the most simple answer is, 
this is pretty blatantly like rah rah we're better than everyone else that must be what the issue is two comments one yeah. is you mentioned the different versions if you look at different orthodox sidurim while they don't have different versions some omit the line some put the line in parenthesis some put an asterisk next to the line and i guess it's the rabbi or the the community that decides which one they're going to do the other the other thing i was going to say is you were talking about reconstructionism and mordecai kaplan i think a lot of what he was motivated by was a desire to have worship that was not offensive to non-jews and to take some of the some of the 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 uh, accusations against jews like chosenness and like putting down other religions yeah. and kind of get them Correct. out of the surface. Correct, a 19th century sensibility. Yeah, the, 19th, okay. 20, early, I mean, 20th, 20th early, century sensibility. Early, yeah, early 20th century. Now, there's an argument against that. I mean, there's an argument for it, and that is that it makes sense within our time. And then there's another argument against it is why should we have our prayers determined by we're afraid what other people will think of us. Yeah, but that always makes me think about, like, spoken language and common phrases and do you know the background of each of the sayings that you grow up with and a lot of sayings that we grow up with are actually super problematic in their origins doesn't mean they're they're the implication today and then there poses a question do you stop using the phrase once you've learned its origin or do you recognize and nullify the 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 distasteful part of it by continuing to use it for its now applied meaning. Give you a great example of that. Knock on wood. Very few people know what knock on wood means and where it came well, from. Well, so wait, do you know where it's from? As far as I understand, it was a, a custom of emulating knocking on the cross. So in Christianity, knock on wood actually started Way before then, knocking on wood was actually a tradition thousands of years earlier about the fact that the trees live, that the trees have persona. It was actually likely sourced back to, and I'm blanking on, it, it is likely as old as Judaism itself. Now, the Christians are very good about saying, wood, cross, we know this, it's ours, but it wasn't. It was actually about the idea of knocking to wake up the trees in the forest, that the trees had a mystic energy and presence, and you could wake them up by knocking on yeah. wood. But again, I know a lot of Jews who will not not knock on wood They'll because the expression because of the association with Christianity. Correct. Which is exactly the point you were making about yeah. phrases, you know, where they. But that one's even better because right. we're not doing out of an association that isn't the origin of the actual phrase, but it's happened for so long and been such an accepted answer that that's the way it is. What were you going to say about that? Memory is correct, and it very well could be wrong. I think it was the Druids. I will. I will look it up afterwards. I'm just kidding. I'll look it up now. Um, yeah, it's an ancient Indo-European. Uh, tradition of the various spirits that would be woken up from the woods. Uh, I, I just, I absolutely love this because it, again, we immediately assume it's, it's connection to other faith, but it's not even that piece. So I think there's that piece of like, do we stop saying something because of its origin or do we reclaim it to reorient it? And that, by the way, is a perspective choice. There's lots of phrases 
that we don't, uh, that we can choose to use or not use. And I actually don't even think we have to make as big of a deal about them. We can just choose to omit them or not. And there's a whole slew of them and there's all kinds of different origins and pieces. But what I will say is we went through the same frustration here. So there's version after version after version. The British reform version actually borrows from the blessings over the Torah and begins, it is our duty to praise the ruler of all, to recognize the greatness of the creator of all things, and has chosen us to be given Torah. They take out the, the problematic lines and stick that in. The Reconstructionist movement obviously gets rid of the chosenness language. In the Italian ritual, they bow down has been changed to past tense. They used to bow down. That way, it's still true, but we don't have to touch it anymore. And vanity and emptiness has been changed to idols. And so the whole verse refers to instead the ancient idol worship. They've switched the line just enough to take that out. There was evidently an experimental amendment to preceding the verse in the Sephardic prayer books as God has not made us like the nations of the other countries, but that amendment was abandoned as well. And so never have we had a blessing that has had so many different amendments and changes. And the reason for it is because of the discomfort. Maybe it's the discomfort of the relationship at pivotal moments in history. Maybe it was that story of the 12th century and uh, of the, of the, the mass murder and the singing of Alenu and the burning of the sanctuary. Maybe it was some combination of trying to bring it from the high holiday liturgy into having more liturgical presence in our day. There's a lot of reasons for it. But this blessing is really, really charged. So why would I use this as our second time together in learning? It's a really complicated prayer. In which, by the way, most of it is not cited in Torah. A little bit of it is Torah. There's a couple lines towards the bottom that are cited in Torah. There's a little bit that might have some Mishnaic and Talmudic quotes. But for the most part, this is just penned differently. If we don't understand the complexity of how different time in our people's history has interacted with a prayer, then we miss out on part of this transformation, which is... Was prayer part of the way in which the Jewish community interacted with the larger community? And if so, I understand this pivotal question. I understand whether or not we should keep it. Because the rabbis asked the same question with sacrifice. Because the rabbis asked these exact same questions throughout history to make sure that we could still engage in our tradition even if the mechanisms that we were using were suddenly removed from our from our you know toolkit is there any questions about that any thoughts anyone surprised anyone wish we'd bring the spittoon back in it'd be really hard at ki they're very long pews and it would just it'd get messy for sure though closer to sacrifice than the splatter of the blood the spit was probably a nice kind of you know callback to it yeah, Margo. No, I was just thinking, since you brought the spittoon back in with your last sentence, while we were talking about the uh, spit three times, I'm not spit three times, spit uh, when the prayer was said before um, at some rabbi's spit, so they put a spittoon there. Um, am I right? That, that, but I was just thinking, did that, is that, um, the feeling that you spit three times for good luck 
in the, in the Jewish, uh, um, you know, I've heard that only from my grandparents spitting three times. Ah. So I was just thinking of that and before. And then when you just brought up the spittoon again, I thought of it. I mean. Is it for good luck or is it to ward off evil? Yeah. I so. Yiddish folklore. Well, it's Yiddish folklore, but do you know again where it originated? Two, two, two. Originated right next to knocking on wood in case you weren't close enough to knock on wood you would vocalize this idea of the knock with two 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 it actually comes from that same pre-european pre-celtic whatever version you want to go down to the two originally together which is how the ashkenazi side of tradition they're borrowing not just from their own jewish tradition but from the outside world look yiddish is the proof of that right it's not just hebrew it's a blend of hebrew german added a little flavor from some other uh, linguistic sides and put together. And so actually, likely, and I don't know for certain if that is, but what I've always been taught is that that spit was actually, again, superstition that just connects right back to the same as knocking on wood and borrowed from other uh, traditions and sources. But I do like... The rabbinic interpretation that it connects us back to the idea that we've used spit inside of our liturgy. So, so the question you left us with, why are we starting for our second session? It's interesting, one, that our prayers are roughly 257 yearly. Yeah. Um, two, is that our religious leaders were sensitive to the location. I always thought the problem that I had with bowing reeked of idolatry. Statues. And so did the Italians, right? right? That's why the Italian reformers changed that piece. Right. So, so when you realize that the, reli- the prayer is not 5,700 years old, but something other, um, then start to see the base. It's conservative, reform, reconstructionist. Things change as our situation, as in society has changed. Does that make it less religious? Right? Is it less connected? The other thing that I'm still, what did the rabbis do? All the time, if their only job was sacrifice. But that's a different question for a different... They weren't rabbis. That's the whole point, is that one of the most prominent pieces, if you can take one idea from today that leaves you with a bit of a headache and having to call all the other rabbis in your arsenal, because remember, we're like trading cards. You can collect them all. You You don't ever have to think of us. In fact, I believe Rabbi Amy is the one that taught me that. You don't pick just one. You can just collect them all. It's, you know, the more, the 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 better off you are, is that... You have to ask yourself, when does the Jewish story begin? Now, we can be descendants of that Israelite cultic faith, but that's not prayer. That is socioeconomics. That is um, like the idea of sacrifice was actually a giant meal, right? Like, quite frankly, that was a meal, which is why also prayer has some correlation back into the times we eat. Right. That like it was really a meal. You brought a whole cow. Why? So that all the impoverished and the widowed and the poor and the everyone else would have a meal like you brought the cow. You got a little bit of good favor from God and everyone ate together. The most Jewish connection to the Israelite cultic faith of today is that everyone was eating together at our celebrations. Right. But that was Israelite cultic faith. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, when does the Jewish story begin? Because the Jewish story begins post the destruction of the temple then the Jewish story is also not that old. It's also only what? A couple thousand years? 
That's a big difference. And so if you see that our tradition, our religion is actually the religion of a post-destruction of the temple, it makes some other controversial things for us to deal with, some wrestling with, well, what is the point of Tisha B'Av, right? What is the point of of needing Jerusalem? Like, this is a big question, is like the, the, the Kotel, the Western Wall, the, the relationship back. I believe it's because, like, connection to your history does not mean that that history is your be-all, end-all. So I actually can see the relationship to both the Israelite cultic tradition and its spaces and its people and today's Judaism. But the rabbis were bold. And smart and big, big hopeful dreamers, because again, like no one was listening to them when they first wrote this, but they had a thought that people are going to need a structure because they've lost the societal structure that was related to their faith. So they do an even bigger pivot. Israeli cultic tradition is social structure. It is the structure of the nation. Judaism is not. And so they are smart enough to adapt enough of it that Judaism can survive inside of other places, which is actually what makes Alenu beautiful to see. The Alenu has been adapted more times than any other prayer, but in part it's because it's proof that they succeeded in translating what was a national religion, a societal agreed-upon interaction into a religion that could exist in spaces that didn't observe and see the world the same way they did. And I think Probably that's the most controversial piece for them is trying to keep toe that towing that line, making sure they're not compromising that piece, making sure they can stay safe and stay inside these communities and not shake things up more than they have to. And that's why they're willing to go as far as to spit during that prayer, not because they actually think it's a mistranslation, but because they just don't, they don't want the controversy. They want to avoid it. So I think that, Pulling back even broader, and maybe you can address this, the issue I think a lot of us face is given the lives we live, given the society we have, what do we do about prayers that either the words are not meaningful to us or in some cases downright offensive? Do we stop doing the prayer entirely? Do we change the words? Do we say the same words but imagine them differently? Do we reconstruct them in our heads and yet stick to the old words? Uh, I'm thinking, for example, about the morning blessings that, that have been changed by Reconstructors Movement. Sure. And we talked about this last time with, yeah, a little bit with, with... Blessed is God yeah. for not making me a woman, which is... Problematic! To some people. Right. So, but, but the issue then becomes, so what do we do about it? And I think the different movements have a different way of dealing with who decides. And that's why you've got seven versions of Alenu within three prayer books. And by the way, my custom when I was uh, in rabbinical school, I was leading at this small community in Victorville, and I taught them that this was a moment to actually champion Jewish argument and that all voices had to say. I asked everyone to pick the paragraph that – resonated to them the most and say it as loudly as they could at the same time. And it was a hot mess, right? It would begin as a hot mess and then everyone would come together in unified voice for the end of it. And for me, that is in itself a very Jewish experience that you can have and hold different perspectives as long as there is a certain common line of kind of trajectory and respect to it. But, but that is the issue 
is how we continue to adapt it. And again, if we, lest we ever think we don't have the precedent for it, the religion is proof that we had the precedent for it and that we still have that mandate. And if you are like, okay, but Rabbi, one more fun fact about the spit, I'll give you one more. In Yiddish, there is an expression for someone that arrives very late to services, right? We all know who those people are. At KI, by the way, you guys are very good about it. Most people come relatively on time. But in the conservative movement where I was growing up, there was a group that got there after the beginning of Torah. Why? Because there was still an hour and 40 minutes of services left, and that was plenty. But in the Yiddish, you have the phrase kuman sum oishpain, which means he arrived at the spitting. <laughs> it was for the one who made it just in time for Alenu. And so this has truly been a connection back into our tradition, language and words and all that reminds us just how much we have to follow this historical line. And my charge to you is that as you learn more about what the words of our prayers are, you decide, do I reorient them? Do I omit them? Do I say them loudly with the pride that I understand how they got from point A to point Z? But that those choices that we make, those choices are very Jewish. They're not Jewish light. They're not 2.0. They're not odd. When we sometimes call it traditional and reconstructionist, sure, okay, that's an easy way to differentiate the Torah blessings. But the reality is they are both very traditional because it is a very, very, very traditionally oriented thing for us to make the decision that something has to be in line more with where our perspective and our priority and ethics are at. Um, I hope you enjoyed this wild ride through Alenu. I promise the next prayer will not feel so controversial. It will still take an hour to talk about. Let's face it, that's the point of this class. Um, but I, I hope you all enjoyed that. And if you have any other questions about the Alenu, uh, please ask other clergy. I'm completely tapped out. Just kidding. You can always reach out to me. Um, I would love to continue the conversation. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week. <laughs>